Well, if you have your Bibles with you, would you turn with me, please, to Psalm 123. Psalm 123. I really must take a photograph of this pulpit and take it back to our church. We really need something like this. Now, I understand you've been doing a series on the Songs of Ascent, and this uh, uh, psalm is one of those. And I confess, when I first read it, I thought, this is a very short psalm. Um, what am I going to say? And uh, by the time I'd finished preparing, I thought, what on earth can I leave out? Um, so I don't say that to dismay you, but uh, just to encourage you. So uh, let me read to you Psalm 123. I lift up my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy. Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured much contempt. We have endured much ridicule from the proud, much contempt from the arrogant. Let's pray together before we... Look at God's word. Father in heaven, we bow before you and we thank you that you are a God who speaks. Father, we thank you that you speak through your word. You prompted those who wrote it by your spirit to write what you intended should be written. And Father, we thank you that it is here for our good, that we may, we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, but also made wise unto salvation. So, Father, we pray that wherever we are this evening, your word would be a help to us. If we are those who have known Jesus for a long time, we pray that this would be an encouragement to us. Father, if we have not yet come to know him as Saviour and Lord, we pray it would be a help as we understand better what it is that our Christian friends talk about. So, Father, give us that help we need. Father, give to us what we lack and make us what we're not, we ask. For Jesus' sake. Amen. In a previous life, um, before I went to Woodstock Road, and there was life before Woodstock Road, I have to dig back a long way into my memory banks, but uh, I had a job with UCCF, that's the Universities and Colleges Christian Fellowship, which has a ministry among students. And my uh, area was the whole of the southwest of England to visit every institute of higher education in the southwest of England, about 70 places, and of course halls, uh, universities with several halls of residence that push it up to about 80 or 90 different places to visit. And I had a colleague who uh, liked to sort of uh, ask sort of somewhat offbeat questions to the groups of students that he met to get them thinking. And one question that he would ask them is this, why are the Psalms like cornflakes? Now, I don't know if that's particularly occurred to you, but uh, I need to point out this was pre-Muesli days uh, and uh, pre the very sophisticated cereals that you can uh, get in supermarkets and health food shops and things like that. Cornflakes were the norm, you know. Uh, perhaps shredded wheat and wheat, but uh, cornflakes everybody knew about. Why are the Psalms like cornflakes? Well, because cornflakes are part of everyday life, or they were then, and cereal is part of everyday life today. And the Psalms cover those issues which are so much part of the Christian's everyday life. If you're feeling elated, there's a psalm which helps you to praise God even more. If you're feeling low, there's a psalm to help you to identify with those who also feel low. If you're feeling challenged, there is a psalm for you. If you're feeling fearful, there's a psalm for you. Many, no doubt. 
And so the Psalms are a great mirror into which we can look to see the full range of Christian experience and to recognize that wherever we are, there is something there to help us. And for that reason, they are wonderful, personal, devotional aids. And I don't know how you um, grow your relationship with the Lord, how you develop your relationship with the Lord, but um, I find it good not to get into any too settled routine. If I have a particular issue that I'm studying, I use my time with the Lord to focus on that so that it's productive, it's answering an issue which is relevant to me. It may be that uh, uh, you want to um, bring a particular struggle or problem you're going through to the Lord and there are so many passages in Scripture which could be helpful for that. But it should be to help us grow in our relationship with the Lord rather than just tick a box and say we've done it for the day because we're one step away from being a Pharisee if we do that and nobody would want to do that. But also the Psalms are wonderful places to meet the Lord Jesus. In Luke chapter 24 and verse 44 the Lord says, Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So I wonder if, as we look at the Scriptures, are we prepared to find Jesus in the Psalms, in the Old Testament? We must get away from this idea that uh, Jesus is only to be found in the New Testament. He tells us that is not so. We can meet with him in the Old Testament. So, if Psalm 123 helps us personally... It also helps us, those of us who are church-based Christians. It's very easy for Christians in this country, and the people who come from abroad often tell us this, that they find there's a sense of individuality whereby we tend to think of ourselves simply as individual Christians. I'm my Christian, I'm a Christian doing my thing in my particular place, and there's no sense of uh, corporate identity, of body life, that we belong together. Now, Going to church is something which, I was looking at a a website just the the other day, and uh, why do you go to church? Well, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And if I'd had time to to put a response to that, I would say, well, if you are a Christian, why on earth wouldn't you want to go to church? Why wouldn't you want to go to church? Somebody has recognized that things are not altogether good for why people go to church. Some people think that if they go to church that will make them a Christian. I think somebody once said, if you walk into a stable, that doesn't make you to to be a horse. Uh, In the same way, going to church doesn't necessarily make you a Christian. This poem was written to to challenge all of us who are churchgoers. Some go to church to take a walk. Some go there to laugh and talk. Some go there to meet a friend. Some go there their time to spend. Some go there to meet a lover. Some go there a fault to cover. Some go there for speculation. Some go there for observation. Some go there to doze and nod. The wise go there to worship God. Now, that last line is a very good reason for going to church. We come to worship God, but we don't just come as individuals. We come as the covenant people of God. And we'll see how that fits in with the nature of this psalm as a Uh, psalm of ascent. So how was this psalm first used? Well, it was sung by the covenant people of God as they made their way towards Jerusalem to worship their covenant-keeping God. So it wasn't just a group of people walking along and somebody said, well, let's sing this song, all right, but they had no 
recognition of a, of a joint identity. They were God's covenant people going to worship their covenant-keeping God. Now, when you read the Old Testament, one thing which fascinates me, and which I think is uh, sometimes difficult for some folk to, uh, to understand, is what carries over from the Old Testament into the New Testament, and what stays in the Old, in, in the Old Testament, and doesn't necessarily carry over. Now, in, uh, there's one example of this in Psalm uh, 51, verse 11, where this is David um, confessing to God his sin after uh, his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. And in one point in Psalm 51, uh, David says, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now, I don't believe that's something a Christian should be concerned about if we have an understanding that salvation is accomplished upon the cross and not just made possible, that we are secure in Christ, and for that reason we should not be concerned that God would take his Holy Spirit from us. Why? Because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon the prophets, the priests, and the kings to equip them for the particular task that God had given them to do. David had already seen what happened to Saul, how God had rejected him, withdrawn his Holy Spirit from him, and David had been brought along as a man after God's own heart. And so David, obviously terribly convicted of his sin, is worried that the same fate may befall him as befell Saul. And so it's perfectly appropriate that he should cry out, Lord, don't do to me what you did to Saul. But we know that God had a plan and a purpose for David. And even in spite of this, forgiveness was possible. That might be an encouragement to some here this evening who feel that their sin is so great that God couldn't possibly forgive it. That is not so. And some may say, what about the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? If you're worried about that, you invariably have not committed it. But I don't want to get distracted on that. If you want to ask me a question about that afterwards, I'll I'll happily answer it. But uh, God is gracious. He's a God of mercy, as you've been thinking about. He doesn't give to us what we do deserve. He gives to us what we don't deserve. That's the difference between grace and mercy. He is a merciful God. And he'll forgive all who come in sincere faith and repentance to him. Now, the thing which does carry over from this psalm into the New Testament, and it has lots of echoes in the New Testament, this psalm, is that we as Christians today are part of the covenant people of God. But the covenant that we are part of is the new covenant that was introduced by the Lord Jesus Christ. A covenant was an agreement, and it was settled in a very solemn and strange way to us. An animal would be sacrificed, cut in two, the halves laid facing each other, and the two parties to the covenant or to the agreement would walk between the two and would sprinkle blood on the two halves. Now, we are those who are the beneficiaries of the new covenant, a much better covenant, as we read In Hebrews chapter 8, that whole chapter is about the superiority of the new covenant to the old. And how blessed we are to live now and not then. I wonder if you're ever reading the Old Testament. Do you thank God that you're born on the resurrection side of the cross? Rather than before the Lord Jesus was born. Now this new covenant is a better covenant. There's a little bit of rhyme which may help here. It has been said the new is in the old concealed. 
New Testament truths are, are concealed in the Old Testament. And the Old is in the New revealed. The things which were spoken of in the Old Testament are made crystal clear in the New Testament. That's a good way to understand how we can uh, bring the two together and benefit from both. Now, Psalm 123 reminds us of three great truths. The first is what we may expect as Christians. That's in verses 3 and 4. We're going to work backwards up the psalm because in verses 3 and 4 we have the background against which this psalm was written. That helps us to see why he is crying to God for mercy, why he's looking to him. And so we need to understand uh, the experiences through which Uh, they as God's people had been through. The second truth that this psalm reminds us of is whose we are. And that's the question of solidarity. And if you think this sounds a bit like a a union official, uh, it is, deliberately. We are in union with the Lord Jesus Christ and we are one with him and one with each other. That is the very richest and fullest use and definition of that term, solidarity. We are one with him. We believe into Christ. We don't just sort of think, oh, I like his ideas. I'll less do those and make them my own. We are incorporated and made one with the Lord Jesus Christ. So there is this solidarity. And so that when a, a Christian suffers, the Lord Jesus Christ feels it. When Saul was stopped on the Damascus Road... The Lord Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Not why do you persecute the Christians, why do you persecute me? Every time Paul persecuted a Christian, the Lord Jesus felt it. Why? Because of the solidarity, because of this oneness, this union of the Lord Jesus and his people. They had become one, and we have become one. We need to be reminded of that. And the third great truth that this psalm brings to our attention is what our God is like. It reminds us of his supremacy. I lift up my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven. Okay, so let's start at the bottom and work upwards. What we may expect as Christians. Now, if you look at uh, verse 3 and 4, the writer says, Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured much contempt. Not just we're having a bit of a hard time, we have endured much contempt. People have held us in contempt for who we are, whose we are, what we believe, the way we behave. Have you had any feelings like that? Sometimes the the strength of feelings comes perhaps more often from our own unbelieving members of our family. There will be those at work who know us. But it's interesting that the, the turn is told of one man who was ridiculed constantly in his office because he... Uh, made clear his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then one day, one man's life in that office fell apart. All the wheels came off. And who was the person he went to? The one who was mocked. The one who was scorned. The one who was ridiculed. And he poured his heart out to him and he was able to help him. Now, some people think that uh, the situation described here very well fits what we read in the book of Nehemiah, where Nehemiah was... uh, concerned about the state of the walls of Jerusalem and uh, uh, sought permission to go back and rebuild them. And as he was doing that work, then people came and mocked him and poured contempt upon his plans, ridiculed him. There was Sanballat, Tobiah and Geshem. 
and uh, they gave Nehemiah a hard time and there came a point where they wanted to get him to come down off the walls of Jerusalem and to meet them in the plain of Ono. And you can excuse the pun, uh, Nehemiah's reply to going to the plain of of Ono was Ono. You're not catching me going there. I'm engaged in a great work here. I will not be distracted, no matter how much contempt and scorn you you pour on the work that I'm doing. Do we realise that we're involved in a great work as we serve the Lord? It's important not to be distracted or diverted from that. There come those times where we have to say, oh no, I'm not going to do that. Now many feel that, okay, these three guys, Sanballat, Tobiah and Geshem, they fit the description here of those who have poured contempt upon the Lord's people, but there are many, other, many others in the scriptures as well. And we need to understand, if we just turn to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17, that This is not something that should surprise us at all. Revelation is a fantastic book. We haven't got time to get get into that, but uh, uh, it's one of my favourite books. It makes sense of the world in which we live. It's a bit like having, um, if if there was a a tablecloth over that table there, and you were asked to guess what was underneath it, not having seen what was there, you would struggle to work out what was there. It's only when the cloth is taken off that you can understand what's underneath it. So it is with Revelation. It takes off the covers of this world and shows you where the power and the central power and authority lies. It lies in that throne in heaven which is mentioned in uh, uh, chapter 4. But the reason that I'm drawing attention to this point here is that there's a, a symbolic description of how when the Lord Jesus Christ was born, the devil did all he could to try and destroy him. His plans were frustrated. Then in verse 17 of Revelation 12, we're told, Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. That's you and me, if you're a Christian. That's the devil's plan, to make war against the rest of the woman's offspring, the rest of Christ's offspring. Those who obey God's command and who hold to the testimony of Jesus... So let's be real about this. We're involved in the spiritual warfare. We don't need to over-dramatize it, but we do need not to be naive that we have a spiritual enemy and we need to be aware of that. And we all have that and we will face that enemy in different ways at different times and in different levels of severity. Now, this is also something which is echoed in the New Testament. This is amazing passage in 1 Peter entitled in the NIV, Suffering for Being a Christian. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. Have you ever found that you know, things are starting to get rough in your Christian life and you're thinking, what's going on here? What am I doing wrong? Remember the account of the disciples when they were told by the Lord Jesus to row across the lake? They'd done nothing wrong and they found themselves in a terrible muddle, terrible pickle. They were in a great storm and they were straining Uh, at the oars and they doubt if they're going to get across but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed if you are insulted because of the name of Christ you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you if you suffer it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler however if you suffer as a Christian do not be ashamed but praise God that you bear that name. 
For it is time for the judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do God good, not give up, but trust ourselves into the hands of God. So, coming to church reminds us that we are not alone in our relationship with the Lord, not alone in the struggles and the battles we encounter on account of that relationship with the Lord. We need to be able to step back and see the big picture, understand what is going on underneath the surface, recognize the devil's work for what it is, but as we shall see, we have one who sits on a higher throne and we draw our confidence from that. So this solidarity reminds us of whose we are. We belong to God upon whom we are dependent. Now some people struggle with the, uh, with the picture that we have in verse 2. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy. And some people see that as a sort of a negative image. It is the exact opposite. Because in those days, there was no more favoured place for a person to be as a slave of a kindly master or a maid of a kindly mistress who had the best interest of the best of that maid and the master had the best interest of that slave at heart. And there were people like that. It doesn't justify slavery. But our eyes look to the Lord our God. Why? Because the slave and the maid looked to their mistress and master for provision. They depended on them for their livelihood. So we look to the Lord our God. He is the one who gives to us what we need. He is the one who gives to us what we lack. And so we keep looking to him till he shows us his mercy. It's to him we look. It's upon him we call. And I've seen in many houses this, uh, uh, this text, which is either engraved on wood or nicely printed on a card, my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. You've got two riches there, but you can't have more than enough riches from the Lord Jesus. So, we are never alone. There is this solidarity. But also, we have this unique relationship with God himself. And for folk here this evening, you may not be Christians, can I just say a little word to you? Because this is so important that you can have all sorts of funny ideas. I remember I did when first I started going to church. I, I, I had really peculiar ideas about God. I had uh, I'd funny ideas about what church was about. And I can remember those to this day. But Christianity is not about going to church. It's not about ticking boxes. It's not about standing up and sitting down in the right places. And sometimes I used to go to other churches with, the, with friends and I didn't know what I was doing. They were standing up, I was sitting down and 
So in our church, when I was pastor and we had a guest service, I would say, we just stand up to sing, the rest of the time just sit down, all right? Oh, okay. Because it can be confusing. But what we're talking about at the heart of the gospel, the heart of Christianity, what it means to be Christian, is a relationship, a living relationship, which is totally undeserved, which is given to us by God's undeserving favour to us through faith in his son, who gave his life as a ransom for many upon the cross. He shed his blood, and that blood sealed that new covenant, that new agreement, that better agreement. And so we are bound into that relationship with God. And if you have worried about, will this last? Will I be able to keep it up? Of course you won't be able to keep it up. Nobody can keep it up. It's God's hand on us which is important rather than our feeble grasp on him. Now you may say, well, from time to time I do get some scorn. I do get people taking the mick. I do get some ridicule. But I can't really say that I suffer much for my faith compared with what I hear from other folk. Well, that being so, it has to be said that, okay, you may not. There may be a time when you will, but there are many others who, even as we meet now, are languishing in prisons, in North Korea, in Central Asia, for no other reason than they own Christ as Saviour and Lord. And they too are the covenant people of God. We are one with them. We're not a group of individuals. Christ has died for them. They have been brought into the covenant and they too are there. Now, I've got here a tale from the 1040 window. The 1040 window is that strip uh, of land around the sort of, uh, just above the equator really, uh, of of the world where the gospel really uh, struggles to penetrate and we have a friend we're called him Barnabas and he makes trips regularly into Central Asia he goes there to encourage the church which is growing but small but is suffering tremendous persecution just read you a snippet from one of his letters that he sent to us he said, for a t- this is concerns a report of a visit he'd made in, from which he'd just returned. For a total of two months, I was in Central Asia. On arrival, the worsening of the political and social climate in that country was transparent. Deteriorations which are bringing about greater and greater hardships, not only for the thriving body of Christ, but also for the whole nation and its very young populations. A few weeks after I was there, the news came of the murder of three Christians in one of the provinces. These were two brothers and their friend. The pastor of this house group had been arrested earlier. It appeared that those who had done the evil deed had entered their home, separated the three men, put each in a different room, tied their hands behind them, and cut their throats. That is how they were found by one of the children of these men. Okay. We may not suffer much for our faith, but some do. So how are we going to respond to that? Well, shouldn't it stimulate us to prayer? If we lack information to where we might start, then there's excellent material from the Barnabas Fund, which specializes and focuses upon praying for and helping the persecuted church. 
we may think, well, this is a huge thing to pray for. How can we pray that in this great strip of God's earth where there's such opposition to the gospel that we can achieve anything? How can we do that? Well, first of all, be encouraged by the fact that there are growing churches in these places. Even in the prisons, there are people who are coming to faith in Christ. But not one of us here would easily, readily, unthinkably wish to swap places with them. But because of the solidarity which I believe we have with those who suffer, see the writer says, have mercy on us, for we have endured much contempt. We have endured much ridicule from the proud. It's not just me. It's us. It's we. We're in it together. And wherever we hear of a Christian suffering for their faith, that should say, he is my brother, he is my sister. What am I going to do about this? It should stimulate us to prayer. But to whom do we pray? I lift up my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven. This verse reminds us of what God is like, what our God, what your God, what my God is like. He is supreme. There is none other more powerful than he is. He is seated on the throne in heaven. We had a quick look at Revelation and I mentioned that uh, Revelation chapter 4 has a very key phrase and if you haven't spotted it you'll have great difficulty making sense of Revelation Uh, most people can get into Revelation as far as chapter 3 and uh, they think okay this is is good and then they hit chapter 4 and 5 and they think what on earth is going on here it is worth persevering with because it does it takes the the cloth off this world it takes the, uh, the cover off it you can see what is underneath and where the power lies and here we have after these churches have been written to, where some churches are suffering terribly, some churches have been compromised with uh, false doctrine and uh, immoral behaviour, where does the power lie? Is this all there is? And John says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. The voice I had first heard, speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Imagine this. John being, as it were, caught up to the control room of the universe as it were to see what is going on at once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it and the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and this fantastic description it's the throne in heaven and the one sitting on it which is the key to understanding revelation and the key to the encouragement it brings to a suffering and persecuted church which is one of the main reasons that it was written. But also, our God on the throne is the place where Jesus said we should start in prayer. Now, most folk would perhaps be able to get some way into the Lord's prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, okay, we don't need to go any further than that. This is where our prayer starts. Our Father, our loving, gracious, heavenly Father, only through faith in Christ, who art in heaven, whose dwelling place is heaven, high 
in terms of authority and power and majesty and influence. His throne is in heaven. And that is the God to whom we lift our eyes to pray for those circumstances which we struggle with, to pray for our brothers and sisters who are going through terrible times, to pray that God would grant mercy to them, would help them, would strengthen them inwardly. Do you pray that God would strengthen people inwardly? Just throw this one out as a a discussion over coffee sometime. It occurs to me that very often the sort of prayers we pray for, which are good prayers, very often aren't the prayers that Paul prays. And very often the, the prayers that Paul prayed aren't the sort of prayers that we pray. And one thing he prays is that people would be strengthened inwardly. He prays that we would be helped to understand and comprehend the extent of the love of Jesus. That's amazing. He prays that we would be helped to appreciate how much Jesus loves us. Well, surely we know that, don't we? Do we? As more I go on, I realise I do need help to appreciate how much Jesus loves me. It's not within myself to do that. So why don't we pray for one another along those lines and pray for our brothers and sisters who are suffering that they will be strengthened inwardly and they draw that strength from the God whose throne is in heaven. I can remember when people prayed for the downfall of the Soviet Empire and it just crumpled. It just crumpled. God raises up powers and authorities and he puts them to one side. And so we find that what the writer here is saying is something which chimes very well with Jesus' teaching on prayer. It's our place where we start. We come before one whose authority is supreme. Not one about, we may have some uncertainty concerning his ability to to do what we, we, we want. In fact, Paul says just the opposite. To him who is able to do far more than we ask or imagine. If you've got a vivid imagination, well, just let it run right. God can do far more than that. And when we come to seeing the, the fullness of the new covenant blessing of this prayer in the Old Testament, we find it in, the, in Hebrews chapter 4, have this uh, section on Jesus, the great high priest. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, <coughs> the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Now, the Hebrew Christians here were, were undergoing a, a significant wobble. Uh, they were uh, tempted to, to re- resort, to go back to Judaism. It's been put round that What have you given up? You've given up the temple. You've given up the sacrifices. You've given up uh, the law of Moses. You've given up the priesthood. You've given up all these things. And what have you got? Jesus. And Hebrews says, Jesus is more than adequate. And he demonstrates the supremacy of Jesus over all these things which were held up as great losses to the Christians. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Don't wobble. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Now, this is where the echo comes from what we have in Psalm 123. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, 
that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. All that we need from God is mediated to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is that great high priest. He doesn't dismiss us as stupid, weak, pathetic Christians. He understands what it's like to be tempted. He sympathizes with our weakness. And this means that we can come to that throne of grace with confidence, with boldness, not with diffidence, not with hesitation. Is this going to work? Is he up to it? But with absolute confidence. It's a short psalm, but it does help us to have some additional answers as to why it's important to go to church. Remember these guys who sang these these verses, they were travelling up to Jerusalem as the covenant people of God going to worship the covenant keeping God. So why should we go to church? Well, added to the fact that we go there to worship God as those who are wise, we go as our fathers embattled people. We go to church to recognise that we are not alone and that as we share with one another, we'll hear of stories that people have to relate about uh, suffering and uh, scorn and ridicule. And we can pray for one another. We may hear of things which uh, really touch our hearts from other countries with believers in other countries who suffer as well. It reminds us of the, 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 the company of God's people worldwide and we need to keep that in sight rather than looking down through the end of a, a telescope the wrong way. But also we come as those who are God's covenant people. We are bound to him by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are absolutely secure in our relationship with God. But also we come as God's protected people because the one to whom we are bound is the one who has absolute power, absolute authority. Let me just close by reading which of all the Psalms I think is probably my famous, my favourite. Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king, the Lord Jesus Christ, on Zion, my hill. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. He mocks those who shake the fist at him and his people. He is the one who has absolute authority. The day will come when Christ returns and those who've lived lives of rebellion and blasphemy and arrogance and unbelief will just cry for the rocks and the mountains to bury them rather than face the wrath of the living God. But if we're Christians tonight, God has shown us his mercy, spared us from that, and we now enjoy that power of his working for our ultimate good. And therefore prayer It's not just something we do to make ourselves feel better. 
is something we do to invoke the power of a holy and supremely authoritative God to come to the help of his people.